Hello and welcome to another edition of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chavez. Today, a close look at the fascinating history of an ingredient that you've almost certainly got in your cupboard and that equally you've almost certainly never thought about. Baking powder. Stay with me here because the story of baking powder is incredibly interesting. But first, we need to clear up one bit of confusion. What's the difference between baking powder and baking soda? Baking powder has baking soda in it. It's one of the ingredients. There are two ingredients that are found in every baking powder. One is baking soda and the other is cornstarch, which is the buffer between the acid and the alkali so they don't combine in a can and literally lift the lid, leaven the lid off the can. That's Linda Civitello, an independent scholar in Los Angeles, California. Her latest book is called Baking Powder Wars, the cutthroat food fight that revolutionized cooking. My kind of book. I had not intended to write a book on baking powder because, like the rest of the world, I didn't give it a second thought. And I was originally starting to write a book on the history of breakfast. And I thought, oh, well, you know, pancakes, eggs, bacon, I mean, these are deep, deep topics are going to take a lot of time to research. I'll start with something easy. I'll look up baking powder. That'll be a couple of paragraphs, probably. And then I can put that to rest and move on with the real meaty issues. And I got into baking powder and what a massive amount of information. Until the invention of baking powder. If you wanted your bread to rise or to make lighter cakes, you had to use yeast or some other form of leavening. If you were a rich southerner, you might have slaves who could spend an hour or two whacking the living daylights out of a bunch of dough to make what are called beaten biscuits. But for a frugal northern woman, that was out of the question. She might use beaten eggs, if she had any, for a special cake, but mostly she had to have her own supply of yeast. The yeast they made was a big, sloppy slurry. As you see recipes that call for adding pints of yeast. So it's this sludge um, <laughs> that has to be kept in a bottle with a stopper, and it has to be carefully cleaned, and sometimes the yeast would fail. It can die if it gets too hot, if it gets too cold, if it's not fed. This was a tremendous burden on women to make yeast. What we're seeing, the, the theme that runs through all of this, is that women everywhere, if they had to do their own baking, were looking for a way to get that burden removed from them. They were looking for shortcuts no matter where they were. And so, starting in New England, women began to experiment with various chemicals. Hartshorn produced originally from deer horns, produces ammonia gas, which can raise a thin batter or cake. But it smells of ammonia. Ash is an alkali that will react with the acid in sour milk to make carbon dioxide gas, which again produces bubbles to lighten up the mixture. But it's caustic. Eventually, chemists, apothecaries, came up with formulations that were safer and more convenient. And when they did, the use of baking powder really took off. It's really kind of stunning. It spreads through the Anglophone world. 
right? England, United States and England think this is wonderful. Uh, European countries think it's terrible. And we see this in the cookbooks. You can trace the spread of leavened goods through the cookbooks, the different ethnic groups, the different immigrant groups in America, they were introduced to baking powder and what use they made of it. And not just immigrant groups, but Native American, uh, African American. So you say that there are the, the two ingredients in every kind of baking powder are an alkali and cornstarch. Um, but the basic formulation, you've got three different basic formulations for the acid. Is that right? Yes. Yes. The earliest combination of acid and alkali was the baking soda and cream of tartar. Cream of tartar is from the dregs of wine production. It's a crusty white substance left in the vats, and it has to be scraped off and processed, but it has leavening properties. They are not as powerful as the other two types, or certainly not as one of the other types. And these were sold at the chemists. You went to the, the apothecary to get these. And, you know, they had everything lined up in the little wooden drawers, and one said cream of tartar, and, you know, so they would take that out, measure it out by the gram, put it on the paper, wrap it up, and you would get your cream of tartar and your baking soda, and then you would go home and you'd have to measure out what you needed. Or uh, sometimes they would come with little spoons. The big spoon is for the alkali, the small spoons for the acid. I mean, even this was better than yeast, so women were willing to put up with this. Uh, it wasn't until later, about mid, mid-19th century, that that buffer came in there. So another, the second type in we're talking in, in chronological history here. The second type of baking powder that was developed was created by a professor of chemistry at Harvard, uh, a man named Horsford, and he called his company, company Rumford, and it's still in existence. And he said, I want to come up with a better way to leaven. And he saw that nutrients were being lost as flour was getting more and more refined. People were moving away from coarse whole grain, whole wheat flour. He said, I want to put nutrients back into the bread. I don't want to just leaven it. I want to enrich it. So he came up with bones, animal bones. He bought them by the tons, mutton bones, beef bones, and processed them in giant kettles outside until they were reduced. And then he powdered them. Um, and this became the second kind of leavening. It's, it was called monocalcium phosphate. And later, the bone process was replaced by minerals that were mined, you know, were extracted from the earth. Mm -hmm. The third kind of leavening, and these come at, at intervals. We get cream of tartar and baking soda in around the 1840s. In 18. 50s, 60s, we're getting monocalcium phosphate coming out of Harvard University. And in the 1870s and 80s, we're getting the third, which is another mineral called sodium aluminum phosphate. And that one has the most leavening power, and it's also very cheap. Okay, so 
three different kinds of baking powder acting in slightly different ways. You said that the sodium aluminium phosphate was probably the most leavening power. Um, any real difference if you cooked with the three? I mean, okay, so one was more active than the other, but, but was the finished product different in any way? In the baking, there was an issue because the cream of tartar reacted with the liquid in the in the batter. So cream of tartar was usually added last, and when you added it with the liquid, it might not get dispersed throughout the batter, and also you had to get it into the oven immediately, or it would lose its leavening power. It would leaven, and then it would, so as I said, it's weaker, and it doesn't hold the leaven. Um, sodium aluminum sulfate has two reactions. So the the baking soda will react with the liquid and then the acid reacts with the heat. So you will get a stronger leavening power. People were amazed at the sodium aluminum sulfate, the third type, and they were like, yes, this is wonderful. I love this. And it was was inexpensive. Uh, You needed to use less. And in the middle, you had the the bone, the monocalcium phosphate, which worked very well. Okay, um, so one was cheap, relatively, and effective. One was expensive, relatively, and ineffective, or less effective, let's say. Um, I wouldn't have thought there was any need for a war. That I would have thought that, you know, housewives would buy the cheap one that worked well. So who started the war and why? <laughs> housewives did buy the one that the cheap one that worked well, and that was what started the war because the cream of tartar company, Royal Baking Powder, had gotten there first. And this appeared miraculous when it showed up, but then you had all these competitors were pulling the market away from them, beginning immediately. So in order to fight this baking powder that was cheaper, that was more effective, they came up with a campaign, an an advertising campaign, that said that this chemical, sodium aluminum sulfate, was poison. And it's in the news headlines at the time, because Royal was very plugged into the newspapers, and journalism was not in the 19th century what it is now. And uh, Royal was brilliant at marketing, and they sent, they created stories in their own advertising, in-house advertising department at Royal Baking Powder in New York City. They sent them out to newspapers throughout the country as straight news. And they were articles about, is it alum or is it malaria? You know, and family taken ill after eating biscuits made with alum baking powder. So sodium aluminum sulfate became known as alum. So people are going, well, what is this? I use this. I've been using it. Am I killing my family? And it's like, oh, that's ridiculous. And, you know, so you got this war. And the newspapers, if they had a contract with Royal Baking Powder to print these articles, and they printed them in the news section, they didn't print them in the advertising section. Hmm. So they looked like straight news, like, oh, my God, isn't this terrible? So... People would just generally think, oh, well, Royal's the best. Royal is pure. And these others, yeah, that's 
oh, that, that's dangerous. I better spend the extra money. And especially among the intelligent population, they really thought because that Royal was better because Royal said, we're science-based, we're based on the grape, we're pure, and the advertising showed it. Here's a bunch of grapes, and here's a can of Royal baking powder. Grape, Royal, pure, from the grape. Um, you know, in Calumet, the major sodium aluminum sulfur, the major alum baking powder, countered with, on its can, it had a picture of the baking powder can rising from an eggshell like a natural food, you know, which it wasn't. So Royal was brilliant at this kind of advertising. And then they, when they were really losing market share, they just flat out bought a state legislature for six years. They bribed a state legislature to pass a law saying that alum was poison. All the alum products were removed from the shelves. And Royal was the only baking powder. And the people, it was the state of Missouri, right in the middle of the United States. And people were screaming, this, why are you forcing us to buy this high-priced baking powder? It, there was fighting in the Missouri House, the Missouri Senate, back and forth. And finally, the newspapers got a hold of this story. And it became a scandal, not just in Missouri, but throughout the United States. Uh, you know, the lieutenant governor of Missouri ran away. Uh, another guy went to Canada, and then he went to England. And uh, people were just heading for the hills. Was Royal um, the first company to really take advantage of lobbying and bribery in this way? Or was it just sort of a normal kind of business, and Royal happened to do it rather well in Missouri? There was a lot of bribery going on at the time. You had Rockefeller accused of, you know, it's like, what's he doing that this state is so hospitable to him? And, and big business had tremendous amounts of money, and their Royal was good at it, but they were not alone. Right. Royal got caught, <laughs> is what happened. Um, but the um, Americans changed the United States constitution partly because of scandals like this because at that time uh, what royal did was it only had to buy didn't have to buy the entire missouri legislature royal just had to buy the senate the missouri senate um we still see this in the united states today in <laughs> congress where the house of representatives can want to do one thing and the senate will say no and block it um and in missouri and at the state level it was the same that and because and that's, we changed the Constitution because the state senates voted for the United States senators. So we took that out of their hands because of this corruption. And now the United States senators who go to Congress are directly elected by the people right. because of all these scandals that happened around 1900. Calumet, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, is it just a coincidence that the word alum is, is there in their name? Yes, <laughs> um, because they weren't they weren't above dirty tricks themselves. I mean, you 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 write in the book that they they had powdered egg albumin in in the baking powder. It was an ingredient in their mixture, and when you tested it by putting it in water, um, it foamed up like crazy. I mean, it 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 looked much more powerful than other kinds of baking powder. Was the albumin, did the albumin serve any purpose apart from making 
Calumet look better? No. <laughs> no. <clears throat> I think in the beginning they put it in as a um, kind of a little insurance policy, but then they found out it had this wonderful visual effect that, you know, as you said, it just foams up like crazy. And, you know, you could do this and go, oh, look, that's really powerful. And these others aren't. And they, so other baking powder companies turned against Calumet. I mean, Calumet was making claims about cream of tartar and Royal was making claims about alum or there were, there were all kinds of claims flying back and forth about what was healthy, what was not healthy, what was poison, what was not poison. Did any of this find its way into, for example, the Pure Food and Drug Act, which came at roughly the same time? Was it, was it a stimulus for the Pure Food and Drug Act? Uh, actually, it was almost a, it was a deterrent because the fighting was so vicious. It held up the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act, which went into effect in 1906. Um, but yes, it was one of those of, well, what is poison? What isn't? And both sides wanted the Pure Food and Drug Act to declare its competitors' products illegal. And that was the point of Royal going to Missouri. They knew, they knew there was a Pure Food and a national, federal Pure Food and Drug Act in the works, the point that Royal wanted to make, what Royal had hoped to start with Missouri, outlawing all the alum baking powders was, then they could go to other states and say, look, Missouri is in the forefront of taking care of its citizens. Missouri is forward thinking. You know, how can you treat the citizens of your state by allowing this poison to be sold? And they did for years, from the time the Missouri law was in effect in 1899, outlawing all the other baking powders except Royal, until 1905 when it was repealed. Royal spent a fortune going to every single state legislature repeatedly trying to get a version of that Missouri law passed. And what they wanted to do was start a massive grassroots movement that would then become a groundswell and go to the federal government and say, look, you know, 10, 10 states or 20 or half the states in the United States have already outlawed alum baking powders. You have to outlaw it, too. So the alum companies knew they were fighting for their lives. They knew that if Royal got away with this, they would all be out of business and we'd have we'd have a monopoly. We'd have one kind of baking powder. So, yeah, that was a fight to the death. And so the, the Pure Food and Drug Act, when it did come in, didn't, didn't actually distinguish between the kinds of baking powder. It didn't say one was, one was okay and the other one wasn't. Nope. No, it did not. And it was not until 1917 or 18 that there was a definition of baking powder. And it was just, it was generic and scientific. And it said, must have the ability to produce X amount of leavening, and it did not go into ingredients or anything at all. And it was it was very crazy, but federal officials in the United States at one point, you know, were just sending memos to each other going, just back off from this. This <laughs> is a trade war, and this we can't get sucked into this at all. Royal had scientific information, you know, proving its point, and then Calumet had scientific encountered, finally, for the alum 
baking powders and with its own scientists saying, you know, alum, this is naturally found throughout nature. You'd have to eat, I don't know, a ton of it before anything happened and it dissipates in the cooking. You know, so we got a scientific war and this finally was what just flummoxed even the federal government and one of the FTC commissioners who was trying to rule on, you know, this Calumet Royal War just kind of threw his hands up and he said, I, you know, whenever uh, science can figure this out and in the meantime, I'm just, you know, go home, everybody cease and desist. And then Royal published a book saying we won and Calumet published a book saying here's the truth and we won. And it just, this was in finally 1928. I mean, this has been going on since the 1870s and just generational. You know, the founders of the companies were, were gone. They were dead and they're, but their offspring, their sons are continuing this baking powder war just as viciously. So, and it just shows no signs of ending whatsoever. So who won the baking powder wars? Tell you, Matt. Well, actually, it the sodium aluminum salt, the alum baking powder won, but it's a company that didn't even kind of register on the radar until the 1930s. And that is Clabber Girl in Terre Haute, Indiana. And just headed by a brilliant man uh, who had gone to the Sheffield Scientific School at Yale and said, you know, here it's the Depression. Uh, I've got this company here. I've got this good product. People like it. It's It works. The price is right. And he pretty much pegged the future of everything in his family and the business on the baking powder, and which was only being sold in Indiana, in Illinois, I think a little bit in Ohio. I mean, that was it. And he said, we're going national and we're going head to head with Royal, which has been in existence since the 1860s, with Rumford, which has been in existence since the 1850s, with Calumet, which has been there since the 1880s. And they all had massive distribution networks nationwide. They had contacts in every major city. They had warehouses even or, or production facilities throughout the country. They had this massive advertising arm, connections with five, 6,000 newspapers in the United States. And he's got six trucks. And he says, yeah, I'm going to do this. And he did. He did. He started in 1931. And by 1935, four years, Clabber Girl had turned the baking powder business market upside down. Clabber Girl was the leading baking powder company in the United States. It was stunning. It was just stunning as a business model. <laughs> and is Clabber Girl still going? Still going, still the number one baking powder in the United States. Still family-owned. Uh, Royal disappeared in around the 1950s because of that single acting. Because in the 1920s, Calumet decided to capitalize on that double action of its baking powder, that reaction with the, the first leavening action, which is with the liquid, and the second leavening action, which is with the heat. So Calumet was saying double acting, double acting. So they're double acting and they're, you know, cheaper 
than Royal. Royal has no comeback. But Clever Girl's also double acting, and yet somehow they, they beat Calumet at, at their own game. They did. Uh, they did. And what Clabber Girl did was Clabber Girl came up in the 1930s, around that time, was the beginning of what we call now in the United States, BOGO. Buy one, get one. That was a new concept. And what Clabber Girl did was they gave, they gave Clabber Girl baking powder away. They gave away cases of Clabber Girl, not to consumers, but to the grocers. So you're a grocer. You've got two cases of Clabber Girl. One of them, whatever you can sell that for, that's pure profit for you. So the grocers became the de facto sales force for Clabber Girl nationwide. That was how they did what they did with only six trucks and no sales force. It's like, make the grocers your sales force. Towards the end of the book, you, you say, kind of almost as, a, as a, an elegy, I suppose, you say it caused a paradigm shift and then vanished from consciousness. Right. I mean, if you talk to a professional chef and say, oh, what is the secret of your, your muffins? What is the secret to this incredible cake? And they can, you know, they'll tell you about they're using heirloom flour, maybe, or they are using organic butter, or, you know, they get the f- finest chocolate from Ecuador or somewhere, you know, they, they'll tell you about those things. Nobody's going to say, I use this brand of baking powder. Linda Civitello, author of Baking Powder Wars. Her book's full of stories that we didn't even touch on. And after reading it, I'll never again look at a packet of the stuff in the same way. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. And if you buy it online from that, I get a teeny weeny reward. Or you can give me a slightly bigger award by leaving a review where you get podcasts or just recommending me to friends. Donations welcome, too. The place to do that is the website, eatthispodcast.com, which is also where you can plunder the archives and sign up for the newsletter that I send out between episodes. On that score, I'm still putting all the links to the stuff in the newsletter on the website. But if you want my snarky commentary, you'll have to subscribe by email. That's it for now. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Eat This Podcast. Until then, from me, Jeremy Jarvis, goodbye and thanks for listening.